Well, good morning. Man, it's such a good crowd. It's awesome. Hey, we are about to begin a new series called Modern Family Reframed. And over the next four weeks, we are going to look at what the Bible has to say about the family. We're going to talk about God's design for the modern family. In fact, in your bulletin, over the next several weeks, you're going to hear from lots of different kinds of people. But in your bulletin is a little red arrow and a QR code. On the last, which QR code is those little squiggly lines, uh, there's a place where you can just scan that with your cell phone or you can go online to our website. And we want you to submit questions because on the last week of this series, uh, we are going to have a panel discussion and we're going to field questions about family. So in case you are unaware, the modern family is struggling. According to the Pew Research Center, only 51% of all adults in the United States are currently married. Back in 1960, as a point of reference, that number was 72%. We have the highest divorce rate and as a result, the highest percentage of one-person households on the planet. Approximately one out of every three children lives in a home without a dad. And today, more than a million public school students are considered homeless. We have the highest teen pregnancy rate, and we are tied with Britain for the highest average number of hours spent watching TV per week. Any ideas how many hours that is per week? It's 28. So how's that for an uplifting start to a series on the family? But here's the deal. The God of the universe, the God who hung the stars and the moon in their place, has a better way. And I believe God's design for the family looks much different than what the world is selling as normal today. In fact, I believe God's desire, God's design for our families is to provide a story of hope, redemption, and beauty to a world that is desperately longing for it. When we talk about a series on the family, many different things come to mind. Many good, some bad, and some filled with incredible pain. But this series, at its core, is a series about relationships. God's relationship to us and our relationship to the world around us. You will learn things about parenting, but you will also hear things that will impact your workplace or your relationship with your neighbors. You will hear things about being a good spouse, but you will also learn about what it takes to be a good friend. So at whatever stage you are in life, parent, non-parent, grandparent, uncle, empty nester, single, whatever your stage of life, there is truth in what we are going to talk about over the next four weeks. I'm a dad of two little girls, so today you're going to hear things from that filter, but the lessons that we're going to hear today have implications through all sectors of life. And during the course of this series, you will hear, as I said before, from singles, from single parents, from grandparents, from empty nesters, from the gambit of people. So where do we begin? I hear all the time people talking about what we need in this country is to get back to good old-fashioned family values. Or we hear people say things like, when I was a kid... Well, let's do that. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have two kids, two boys, who literally hate each other. 
In fact, they hate each other so much that one day after a huge fight, Cain kills his brother Abel. This is the first family. Noah has a severe drinking problem. Joseph, the son of Jacob, his brothers take him out, tie him up, and sell him into slavery. And then run home to tell their dad that an animal has killed our brother. This is the kind of family dynamics in Scripture. King David, he takes a woman who is happily married to someone else, sleeps with her, and then he kills her husband to cover it up. These are not perfect-looking families. So at the beginning of this series on the family, let's stop trying to, con- to, stop trying to buy into the notion that there is such a thing as a perfect family. Let's give up the notion that our families are going to be perfect, that we came from perfect families, or that we currently live in a perfect family, because those things do not exist. But we live in a culture that is concerned about the picture-perfect family, right? You know the growing trend of no longer writing an actual Christmas card? We just snap a picture of our picture-perfect family, and then we send that out to our friends and family? Well, we do that in the Davis home. And every year we set out to take the perfect family portrait, which genuinely, generally results in a public slap fight in my family. <laughs> we, we start out with great intentions. We start out early in the year. We put it on the calendar. We think we're going to go out. We're going to take this great picture. We've got matching sweaters and shirts with long sleeves. We, we, we set the calendar so early to get it out of the way so it's like 100 degrees outside, but we're dressed like Eskimos. And all the way there, kids are crying, and my wife's looking at me like, I can't believe I married you. And, and, and we, stand there in the, we stand in front of a tree, and we're sort of awkwardly trying to smile because everyone's miserable. And the photographer is pressuring us, which to get there on time for the golden hour, which is photography speak for dusk. And uh, so we're rushing and the, the Davis family doesn't really rush. And so we, we're there and we're, we're trying to take this picture and the photographer has taken like 200 pictures. And then he says to us, he says, can you uh, look more natural? <laughs> which, is, which means I've just taken 200 pictures that all are bad. And so I'm like squeezing in my kids' hands to smile, and, and, and then all of a sudden magic happens, and one out of 400 pictures, with a little help from Photoshop, turns out to be a great one. And we put that on a card, and we send that out to our friends and family, and we say, look at how happy the Davis family is. <laughs> so I don't know what it's like in your home, but here's the deal. As we start this four-week series, I want us to commit to recognizing that none of us have this down. None of us have perfect families or have come from a perfect family. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, my children are young, which means my parenting is largely untested and unproven. There's a good chance my kids still may end up in jail. We will wait and see. But I have been in ministry for a long time and and a youth pastor for 10 of those years. And I have, over the course of my life, had the occasion to be around some really spectacular families who understand the God-given frame for families. And I have, over the years, observed some characteristics, some practices, 
which we are trying to use in our home to shape our family. These things have reframed for me how I want my home to be. Each of these characteristics is rooted in the Bible. In fact, they all come out of the book of Proverbs. And I'm not sure, as a general rule, we view the Bible as the go-to guide for family advice. I'm not sure we view it as the right resource for parenting tips or for marital tips. But in reality, Scripture holds a lot of great truth on the idea of family. Because the, the Bible doesn't, can't, can't um, experience the context of this island in the stream mentality that we have. The Bible doesn't take into account the individual or the individualistic family. Everything is a family in the Bible. It assumes that your boss is part of your family, that your neighbor is part of your family. It assumes a communal village sort of experience. So when you read scripture through that filter, there's lots of truth that we can learn about relationships, especially as they apply to families. So we're going to look at three characteristics of well-framed family. The first thing that I've noticed about these families is, number one, they model their faith in an authentic way. Proverbs 14, 26 says this, Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. There is this interesting correlation between the faith of parents and the kind of safety experienced in the home. What I have observed in these families and what I'm trying to live out in my own home is this. Modeling faith is more important than teaching faith. Modeling your faith to your kids, to your parents, to your coworkers is more important than teaching your faith. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach Scripture to our children. But what is truly important is that our kids see us over an extended period of time living out our faith in an authentic and true way. Now, this is a really encouraging thing because it's been my experience as I've talked to moms and dads and grandparents over the years that many feel inadequate when it comes to teaching scripture to their kids. For me, I didn't grow up in a home where we had family Bible studies or we didn't gather for family prayer. In fact, we didn't even go to church until later in life. But what I do remember is watching my mom every day faithfully seek after Jesus. In her own way and later in life in a more visible way, I watched her pray I watched her serve other people. I watched her go toe-to-toe -to -toe with every adversity that faced our family. Beyond my immediate family, if you know anything about my story, you know that I was raised by a bit of a village. And I have many, I have hundreds of memories of watching godly men and godly women who were divinely placed in my life reading scripture with me, praying with me, and in countless ways modeling their faith to me. John Maxwell, a pastor and a leading expert in the area of leadership, says it this way, you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. So what does it look like to authentically model our faith in our homes? Well, first, I would say that it looks different in every home. But it starts with inviting your kids into your relationship with Jesus. 
And sometimes this is a really easy and very natural thing. It's an easier thing when we are experiencing good times with God. When His blessing, when His presence is obvious and evident, it's easier to share our experience with God in those moments. We have an opportunity, a unique opportunity, to give God thanks together as a family. But if we are going to model an authentic faith to our families, it also means we need to share those times when God feels distant. At times, we are going to share our doubts. Sometimes, we're going to feel overwhelmed. And in an age-appropriate way, we need to expose our kids to those struggles. Sometimes, maybe, you are in a season where you're praying for God's healing or for provision. Or maybe you're praying for another family member to come back to God. Whatever it is, whatever the struggle may be, it's imperative that we share that in an age-appropriate way in our families. And what they will see when you do this is someone who is genuinely trying to follow Jesus. Modeling your faith is infinitely more important than teaching your faith. I, I hear a lot of discussion right now about the number of kids who upon graduating from high school, leave church and never return. They exit their relationship with God or their understanding of religion for something else. There are really painful statistics out there on this very topic, but I think the problem is rooted right here. Because in our homes, it is natural and easy for us to give God credit for all the great things that He does. But it is a challenge. We tend to be more reserved or a little shy about sharing the struggle of our relationship with God. We don't model for our kids what it means in James when he says, consider it pure joy when you face struggles of many kinds. We don't give them the skills necessary to deal with what they perceive as a failure from God. And that's incredibly important. So don't buy into this lie that you have to have every part of your life spiritually in order before you lead your kids spiritually. The truth is you're influencing your kids every day. So encourage them by modeling your faith in an authentic way. If you want your kids to be a part of church, then you need to be a part of church. If you want your kids to be generous with their resources, then you need to be generous with your resources. If you want your kids to grow up to be loving and compassionate people, then you have to be loving and compassionate people. All right, so that's value number one. The second value is they create a family culture that is unique and fun. Proverbs 17.22 says this, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up bones. We live in a culture that is extremely kid-centric, don't we? Have you noticed this? Take a moment sometime this week and, and count the number of messages that are pointed not at you, but at your kids. Commercials and advertising and television shows and entertainment, all the messages that are fired at this generation. And I think it's that, that, those messages that compel us to fill our kids' schedules, to overbook our kids, 
with soccer practice and ballet and band rehearsals and tutoring and cheerleading and football and basketball, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, you fill in the blank with the things that are present on your calendar. We somehow believe the lie that I must give my child every single opportunity that life can afford them. You know, no one in history has ever been able to do that. It cannot be done. The second lie that I think is pushing us to overextend our kids is that we must give our children or our families the very best that we can afford. The very best toys, the very best home, the very best experiences, the very best, you fill in the blank. Even when we know we can't afford it all, we feel horribly bad about not being able to provide the best stuff and opportunities. So if you're a parent this morning, hear this. You do not owe your kids every single experience in life. You don't owe them the best stuff that money can buy. You don't owe them the best opportunities that they can experience. You only owe them one thing, and that is the space in your life and the space in their life to experience the community of family. That's all you owe them. Now, not every person in this room needs to hear these next two words, but I want to challenge some of you. As a family, you need to to take these next two words to heart. You need to slow down. The families that I have seen be most successful over the years have worked really hard at being a solid family unit. They are creating kids and families who know who they are, know who they belong to, and where they came from. And this can only happen when we slow down and we do life together. So what does this mean for us today? It means that we have to say no to some things so that we can say yes to being together as a family. It means turning off the TV and putting the cell phone in the other room so you can be present with each other. It means not allowing sports and extracurricular activities to run your life. I live in a home with three girls. My wife and two daughters, all, uh, my, well, my wife is not under the age of eight, but my two girls are under the age of eight. My house is a fortress of pink and sparkles. <laughs> now, I didn't grow up prepared for this. I grew up with just a brother, and we didn't have things that were pink, and it, I'm not used to it. I didn't grow up with that. There are days when I am simply not equipped for the girlness in my home. And since we're really being honest here, I'm telling you that I struggle at times to be fully present for my girls. I struggle to put the phone in the other room. I struggle to turn off CNN and to watch for the 100th time the American Girl story of Kit Kit Rich. (laughs) Not because I don't love them or want to be with them, but because I don't always know how. My wife, on the other hand, is brilliant at this. The other day, I came home from church, and the girls had decided it was time to repaint our youngest daughter's room. Any ideas on what color? (laughs) Yes, pink. As I got closer to the room, and I had a closer opportunity to examine the situation, I realized that present in Piper's tiny room were the 11-year-old from next door, the 6- and 10-year-old from across the street, the 5-year-old from down the street, my 7-year-old, and my 4-year-old. Every one of them has a paintbrush, and every one of them is touching the walls. 
I thought I was going to lose my mind. My personality is a little bit more structured and in order. Let's start at the top of the wall and paint down. Or let's, hey, let's give you a choice. Let's start at the bottom and work up. We don't start in the middle in a giant circle and paint the room. But what my wife was doing was communicating to our children that we are going to have fun as a family. That we are going to establish routines that uh, are a little extraordinary. That we're not always going to do things the way that the people down the street might do them. Or quite frankly, the way their dad would do them. (laughs) That she was making memories with our girls. And I'm learning that what my kids need most from me as their dad is for me to say yes more than I say no. Yes to their dreams, yes to their tea parties, yes to wearing the tiara, yes to anything that puts me in close proximity to my girls. Whether it's Abby and I reading the New York Times on the front porch or whether it's Piper and I watching NASCAR on the couch. Yes, she likes NASCAR, that's not me. And you know what the best part of that process is for me? That along the way, I'm learning what makes my girls special, what makes them unique, and that makes me a better dad. At the end of the day, I want to be a part of a family that has fun together and enjoys being together. When my kids are grown and leave the house, I want them to look back and have hundreds of memories of us being together as a family and having fun and dad saying yes to even the most craziest of ideas. Strong families are built by saying no so that we can say yes to what matters most. And finally, the third thing is, we, and I believe we could go on for, for a long time on this, but we only have so much time. The last thing I've observed in strong families is this. They build character intentionally. Proverbs chapter 1, starting with verse 1, says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. This is what the the Proverbs are for. For giving prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. And let the discerning get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables and sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Parenting is about helping our kids develop character so that they know what is right, just, and fair. It is about parents teaching our kids how to make right choices. The story of the Bible is God giving people, His people, choices over and over again. And then allowing them to deal with the consequences of their choices. So this is the natural cause and effect of life. Paul says in Galatians, you reap what you sow. And we need to teach our kids that very lesson. Teaching our kids how to make choices and understanding the consequences of bad choices is essential to building a strong family. In the book, uh, Parenting with Love and Logic, by Foster Klein and Jim Fay. They make an incredible point about parenting and creating age-appropriate choices. Listen as I read it. If we let them risk accomplishing difficult things, it means they might just as easily fail as succeed. 
They must know we love them whether they succeed or not. And we can support and encourage them along the way as long as we don't take away their efforts. And here's the point. By letting our kids work their way through age-appropriate tough times when they are younger, we are preparing them to effectively face truly tough times down the road. We must let our kids struggle. We must let them fumble on their own. And we must let them succeed on their own. God did it for Adam and Eve. God does it for you and I. And we must learn to do it for our kids and our families. Throughout Scripture, we see God giving His people decisions to make. And He allows them to make mistakes. In fact, more often than not, it results in some sort of failure. We must develop character in our kids. It is one of the fundamental things we must do as a family. For a lot of reasons that we don't have time to talk about today, we're falling short in this area. When it comes to developing character in our kids, it takes time. We, for some reason, want to protect our children from failure when failure is what makes people great. Character takes time to build, but we want to give everything to them without the lessons that come from struggling to do it on their own. I, have a, I had a grandfather who was a very tough individual. He was lifetime career military, retired as a colonel. He ran his life in a very sort of disciplined way and not always healthy and not always appropriate. He taught me character. He taught me the simple things like which fork goes first. And then he taught me the bigger things like how to be honest and how to pay your debts, how to be faithful. He taught me a lot of things over the course of our life together. But he never made it easy. In fact, many times he made it really age-inappropriate but he taught me some things. What does it look like for you and I in our homes to create character in our kids? It means not running to their defense every time there's a conflict at school. It means not trying to make their path easy. It means we stop paying our kids to be our kids and we pay them to earn stuff. Experts tell us that good grades will give our kids a head start But to be truly successful in life, kids need strong character and the ability to persevere through adversity. I'm wondering how we're doing at that. My challenge to you this morning is that you take one of these three things, whether it's modeling our faith in an authentic way in our homes, whether it's creating a family culture that is unique and fun, or whether it's building character intentionally, that you take one of these three things and you say, I'm going to commit to that one thing over the course of this next nine months. I'm going to pick one of those and we're going to focus on it as a family. Whether you're a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, whether you're a teacher, an educator, whether you're around kids, You can take one of these things and say, I'm going to infuse that into the way I approach what I do. You take one of these characteristics 
Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on your rearview mirror. Put it on your bathroom wall. Put it someplace that it will remind you and will be distinct in your home and you begin to have this culture around it. God is not interested in cookie-cutter approach to family. He's interested in forming every family. He's not interested in forming every family into the same picture-perfect thing. God wants to tell a story of hope, redemption, and beauty through your family. That's God's design for the family. And I believe it's God's design for every relationship that we have. So we're going to pray. And because parenting is hard and because I'm a parent of small ones, I'm going to ask all the parents in the room to stand up so that we can pray for you. And since school is about to start, I'm going to ask everyone that's connected with education, if you're a teacher, an administrator, an aide, a volunteer, I want you to stand up so we can pray for you. Now it would be good to do that. <laughs> I'm going to pray for all of us in a few moments, but right now I just want to pray for this group of people because the challenges they face are hard. They're no harder than yours, but they're unique. So we're going to pray. Then I'll ask the rest of you to stand and join us and we'll finish. Father, as we look at this room and all of these folks that are standing up, these people have an impact over the next generation. And so God, we lift them to you and we ask that you give them your wisdom, that you give them your sense of purpose. You give them the ability to see the kids, the families in their life the way you see them. as a light in a dark world, as a beautiful story being told that draws people to you. Parenting is not easy, God, and so we ask for your blessing, for your insight as we seek to lead our kids. But mostly, God, we ask for courage to take one of these three lessons and apply them into our homes. God, we thank you for choosing to use us in these kids' lives. Now will the rest of you stand? And Father, as we continue to worship you this morning, would you continue to overwhelm us with your presence, overwhelm us with your love, that we walk out of this place changed, different for having been here this morning, transformed. God, we love you and we thank you for choosing to use us in your plan to redeem the world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to pray and we'll be done. Father, as we leave this place, as your church leaves this building, let us be a light to a dark world. Let our families, let our workplaces, let our neighborhoods be places where you are experienced. God, give us the strength to boldly build our families under your design. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have a good week.